The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Well, now it's time for our Friday Forum. I'm joined by Lynn Boylan, Sinn Féin spokesperson uh, for Climate and Justice, Roisin Shortall, as Social Democrats TD for Dublin North West, former co leader. Uh, but she has simply, as you told me during the break, passed on the baton rather than, you know, deciding to throw in the towel. Absolutely, yeah. Time and for Barry the next Andrews, generation. <laughs> next generation. Barry Andrews, Fianna Foyle MEP for uh, Dublin, who's just back from Nigeria, where in monitoring the uh, uh, turbulent enough elections over there. I'm not sure we'll get a chance to talk much about that today. But let's talk, first of all, about Paul Reid warning of any investigation into the state's handling of COVID-19, warning against revisionism, Lynn. What do you think? But look, I think what we want out of the inquiry is that people feel comfortable to come and and be frank and honest about where mistakes were made or, you know, lessons that can be learned. I mean, but I would be concerned with Paul Reid saying about revisionism. Is that him trying to protect himself from, do you know what I mean, from being criticised in, in terms of the inquiry? But like, I think the inquiry has to be robust. It has to be transparent. But the key thing of this inquiry is that we learn the lessons because the reality is there are more than likely going to be more pandemics. Mm. Um, Roshin, it seems like a no blame kind of inquiry. They're not looking for heads on a block for any decisions that uh, turned out to be the wrong ones, even based on the knowledge of the time. Yeah, I mean, it is very easy to be wise after the event. OK, and, you know, at the beginning of COVID, we were seeing just horrific scenes initially and all of that. And thankfully, it didn't turn out to be as bad in Ireland as, as you know, was a possibility at the beginning. Um, but it, in, notwithstanding that, it was very bad. And there, were, there are a lot of concerns about the handling of different aspects of COVID, particularly in relation to nursing homes. So I think the approach has to be about learning. I agree with what Lynn has said. And we shouldn't be starting off by pointing the finger. We have to, you know, ensure that we're open about this it's not about a blame game. Uh, it's no. about how we handled it, some decisions that were taken. And more importantly, I think, who was taking the decisions? Um, well, you know, Nevitt was a huge body. I mean, Nefid, you were yeah. always going to find it difficult to get any consensus in a body of 40 people. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, there were a small number of people within Nevitt that took the decisions. And like we would always say you should follow the science and the science was coming from Nevitt. But it, it we given, were no on this programme, we were ahead in effort. They always seem to be behind the curve. I have to say this yes. on antigen tests, on masks. I agree. On, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. There were so many areas where they were not uh, ahead I, I of the agree. science. And, and I think there was a problem there with Neffert taking a solely uh, medical view of this. Um, and I argued myself even in 2020 for broadening out the decision making body, because, for example, what happened in relation to education, the closing down of education for such long periods, we're paying a huge price or our children are paying a huge price for that now. The impact on older people in particular, and the whole thing of cocooning. Um, and, and again, we are you know, continuing to pay the price for that. And a lot of people's lives have been very badly uh, harmed by that. So, like, we needed more input into decision making. It shouldn't have been solely about the the, uh, the, the um, medical side of things. There should have been, you know, psychological input. There should have been educational input. And, you know, no, behavioural science. Again, who that, would know that, that, broader that if you didn't, uh, if you kept the schools opening and the infections ran right through schools, those kids came home infected to the granny, the granny dies. Yeah, That's but, but, but you know, if you even just looked across the water at the UK, they took a very different approach to education. 
And just one last point I would make. And I heard Dr. Ronan Collins, the geriatrician on the airwaves the other day saying it's fine doing, you know, a, a look back at how COVID was handled. But there was a very important report done over the last couple of years in, um, by the expert panel on nursing homes. A really good report uh, setting out recommendations, very clear recommendations. And and they, you know, they were looking at this and they were making the clear recommendations and doing a progress report. We, you know, could do worse than implementing now, going back, looking at those recommendations and implementing the very clear and strong recommendations about nursing homes. Barry? Yeah, I I wouldn't disagree with the Roisin's assessment there. I I think one of the things the inquiry will have to take cognizance of is that there was a very strong European dimension to all of this. Many of the the decisions were taken at European level, whether it was things like uh, the procurement of vaccines, the approval of medicines through the European Medicines Agency and the Digital COVID Certificate, just to give a couple of examples. And they were done in a highly accelerated fashion. They they were done in a way that was something people didn't expect the European Union to do. The speed at which, for example, the legislation around the Digital COVID Certificate before the summer in order to allow the movement of tourism through particular EU countries that was really important. So I think looking at that, and I recall very, very strongly during the, uh, the pandemic, um, other colleagues from other EU member states would take our arm off for how well we were performing in Ireland. So it's important that no, we, we look did at lock down <laughs> far more than many of them. And, you know, you can get a good result if you keep people at home. I think there, were, there needed more women around the decision making as well because we've seen the, the gaps with the childcare and also the stuff true, around yeah. school. Yeah. So like even in the north you had dedicated caregivers for the nursing homes so people who were able to go and visit the same with the schools for providing childcare. You know, so nursing staff and that yeah. had really struggled yeah. in, in the south because they couldn't access childcare. I, I, could, I couldn't so agree I more, particularly on the education side. The kids who missed out on public exams at junior cert um, and missed out on the socialisation of that crucial time in their early teens and are now coming into public exams for the first time and they're really uh, struggling with But there, there are so many things that really need to be examined like the, uh, the disposal of people from the hospitals into nursing mm-hmm. homes where they became infected. Yes. Um, people on this programme were calling for everyone going into a nursing home to be antigen tested mm-hmm. to limit infection. Didn't happen. We had the description of antigen tests as snake oil at one point. Well, you know, there about, are, about the, the, I, I was involved in the Ebola response in West Africa when I was with Goal. And it, what, what Roshin said earlier, you know, it's hindsight. You, you may make decisions in black and white and it's looked back on by inquiries in full technicolor. And what decisions were taken were, were you know, I, I think we I, I'm a bit nervous about taking a blame approach to this. Um, I think there has to be so, some acknowledgement that the pressures we were under were sure. very, very high. So there's and no I danger like to discourage uh, public decision making. No, no danger of Stephen Donnelly's WhatsApps uh, turning up at the Irish <laughs> Times. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I want to move on to yeah. the framework because uh, uh, the Windsor framework. Lynn, the, uh, Miriam Lord made much fun of the fact that uh, Mary Lou Macdonald couldn't bring herself to say the Windsor framework, presumably because it kind of has a, an echo of the House of Windsor and royalty and the royal family and all of that. Well, I mean, that's Miriam Lord. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to comment to Miriam Lord's style of, of, of rising. But look, the reality is that the, the deal is done uh, and Sinn Féin are very glad that the, the deal is done and we now, we as we've always said, is we want to get back into the Assembly, get it back up and running and start actually delivering government for the people of the North and for the businesses of the North. And I 
I think that's, and, and that's what the, the majority party, of people is want. Is that what you're talking about? The deal rather than ever referring <laughs> to it as the, the Windsor framework? I think you can, you can call it what it is. It is, I mean, the real thing is it's the, pro, the protocol, protocol plus the Windsor agreement. You've said it. Right. The, the, re, the reality is that the important thing is that the Assembly gets back up and running. And look, the DUP are trying to buy themselves some bit of time to test the, the why the, the wind is blowing here but they know they're running yeah, but out they're, they're stuck aren't they? they're running out of road do you know what I mean they're running out of road with the Conservative Party they're looking at the possibility of a Labour government coming in they know that the businesses in the north are really uh, delighted to see that this deal is done so that's you know that's the reality for the DUP so look if they need another few Ro- days yeah, and they do need time and they should be allowed time. It is a very good deal. Um, you know, but the, the electoral reality has to be recognised at the same time. Ten weeks time, there's local elections. Um, the TUV are snapping at the heels of the DUP. So do you think they're going to try to buy time to get beyond the local elections before they uh, decide one way or the other? I think or that's a bit too far away. I think I so too. I don't think they can draw it out that long. But I don't think they should be put under pressure at the same time. One of the things I think would be very helpful it would be for the business community to be more vocal in the North. You know, this is a fantastic deal. And as, as the Prime Minister has said, you know, there's no other place really in Europe that has such a good deal. <laughs> but this it, was the joke. They all had it. They all England, had Scotland, it. Wales had it before exactly. the Brexit exactly. happened. Exactly. Um, but, but, you know, the business community is very keen for this to be approved and for things to get back to some kind of normality. And I think they need to be more vocal in terms of persuading unionism to, to recognise how good a deal this is. And, uh, you know, and, and it's to, okay. to now, hopefully... Uh, Barry, Rishi Sunak agreed. blinked in the sense that they agreed on data sharing, which seemed to to be a key thing from the EU point of view. But uh, how much did the EU give away in terms of the the uh, storm and break, for instance, where they can uh, effectively veto a change in EU regulation that we would apply right across the single market, but not in Northern Ireland? Uh, it look, uh, when, when I looked at it first, it looked like a veto. Well, it's not. It's not a veto. Um, there are a myriad of obstacles before a disapplication of some EU regulation to Northern Ireland can occur. And if, it, if that does happen, the European Union takes remedial measures. And that's a worry for us. There are potential the, the downstream. The way I was putting it, Barry, is that if someone in Northern Ireland doesn't like the new rule from the EU that affects their manufacturing, uh, they manufacture to a lower British standard and then flood us with TAT when our manufacturers are forced to adhere to the highest standard to make the same product. It, it, there, there are potential downstream risks for Ireland, but the, the mistake at the beginning was to outsource the uh, monitoring of movement of goods from GBNI in the first place. And once that was done, it was very hard to bring that back. And that's still the case. It's still a huge amount of trust uh, being placed on the UK to properly monitor the movement of goods between GB and NI. And I think one of the other things that perhaps isn't properly spoken about is on the island of Ireland, trade north and south increased dramatically since the protocol came in because people are avoiding the GBNI route. Now, it may well be that if this beds down and GBNI is much more unfettered movement, that that north-south trade will reduce uh, a little bit. I think that's something that probably hasn't been spoken about. And I think just the final thing I'll say about the storm and break, very interestingly, I think it puts the alliance in a much better position, the alliance party, because it doesn't require uh, it to be exercised by um, parties 
from nationalist and unionist. It is simply two parties it's, it's a, and 30 MLAs. But 30 MLAs is the problem. So that's the the kind of petition of concern mechanism. And if you but don't it doesn't have... doesn't require the designation unionist yeah. and nationalist. And that's something our Alliance yeah. Party campaign be, before for um, uh, we move on, that business of outsourcing the monitoring of goods to uh, the British... If you had EU, for example, monitoring, I'm thinking back to the 1950s when you had customs posts on the border and the IRA bombed them. So would the presence of EU people monitoring stuff not be an invitation to loyalist paramilitaries to to do likewise? There are EU people in Belfast. Uh, Genuinely, you know, I don't know if this is well known, but I mean, people, there are there are customs officials working for the European Union present in Belfast. And their job is to provide information about that movement. And the data sharing agreement gives some uh, real time analysis of what's moving. And that's what was critical. So, for example, if you take Rotterdam port, 30 percent of EU goods come into Rotterdam and loads of drugs come in through Rotterdam. Right. But we are able to carry out the risk assessments. Loads of sanctioned products come in through Rotterdam. Loads of, uh, you know, underpaid customs come through Rotterdam. But we do the monitoring. The so problem you think there will be an element of smuggling one way or the no, other? No, there's always risk. OK, the question is, can you mitigate the risk? And now that we have the data sharing agreement and the UK government have undertaken to build the border, border post, I think it ameliorates okay. and, and that's the very difficult balance that has to be struck mm. here, because, I mean, it's, it's very much in our interest that the, the single market is seen to be protected. Absolutely. Do you know? And if that's not the case, if there is, is smuggling across the border, uh, if there aren't the kind of if there isn't the kind of oversight that you're talking about. Yeah. You know, Don't forget, it, there's it, always been smuggling. Father Brian Darcy told us one time about smuggling butter across the border as a young fellow. <laughs> so when you have a saintly man admitting <laughs> but, to smuggling. But, but, but it, it's absolutely essential that we maintain confidence in our trade. Yeah. yeah. So you know, increased market surveillance is yeah. crucial yeah. Uh, because if the remedial measures are beginning to look at stuff that's coming from Ross Lair into the European continent, then yeah. we really yeah. do have yeah. a problem. Lynn, the question of the DUP's motivation. There have been maybe not so cynical voices, voices nonetheless, suggesting that for the DUP, the bitter pill of becoming deputy first minister rather than first minister is is the real storm and break. Well, look, I mean, there are those of us who firmly believe that the DUP don't want to go into Stormont because Michelle O'Neill is the first minister designate. But the DUP are elected, they're elected to represent communities just like every other political party and the communities want the Assembly back up and running because they want, I mean, there's real issues around the cost of living crisis in the North just like in the South. They want their but, politicians but logic, in. Logic goes their, out the window sometimes. I mean, uh, as it has for the DUP at a time when everyone did not want uh, Brexit, the DUP wanted Brexit for, you know, reasons of sovereignty and all the rest of it and unionism. Um do you believe it's visceral on the part of many senior people in, in the DUP that they just cannot stomach the idea of a Sinn Féin First Minister? Well, I mean, the, the reality is that they're elected to do a job, they're paid to do a job, and their voters are demanding that they do that job. And so they have to put aside whatever feelings they have about the fact that Michelle O'Neill has been democratically elected as, you know, in terms of the, the largest party. They have to put that aside because they have a job to do, or else they should hand over their seats and let other politicians get on with the reality of delivering for, for communities and business. And I think that the uh, DUP, uh, you know, for the first time a protocol uh, settlement has been socialised properly in the North. Other, other times it was to take it or leave it. It's done to Northern Ireland, not done with Northern Ireland. I think on this occasion there's a much greater 
effort to try to bring all communities on board with the with the agreement. And if you remember back to St Andrews, the St Andrews Agreement was signed in the I think the summer of '06, but it was it was May '07 before the two came together in an actual government. So these things can take a little bit of time. Um, for sure. Often when we look back rushed. on them, we telescope everything into a few short yeah. weeks in our minds, but that's not how it was. Um, Roisin, the question of uh, energy bills, and we had a pensioner who may or may not have had a malfunction in uh, some equipment that uh, he was using, talking to us on the programme about a bill that jumped from 200 to 400 to 600 to 1600. Mm-hmm. But many ordinary people not doing anything extra ordinary are having huge bills. What yeah, to do? Everybody's, you know, struggling with electricity and energy bills generally. I think people on low and middle incomes in particular need, you know, uh, need this to be addressed in a structural way by government. There's been, you know, various measures taken to support people getting through on the short and on a short term basis. But the fundamental problem is that all bills are too high. And government needs to act on that. Now, you know, they've promised the the, um, the, the, the the windfall tax. We don't know when that's going to come. But the more important part of that is to put in some kind of caps on energy prices. Now, Pascal Dunhu on this programme this morning ruled that out uh, because of a possible lack of access to energy if we do that, because we have to buy on the open market uh, commodities, not wind, of course, we've loads of that when it blows, but uh, things like gas uh, and oil, we have to uh, compete with others for. Look, there has to be at least a threat there and government need to start speaking seriously to the energy companies. I mean, we saw where Electric Ireland were able to reduce their prices, mm-hmm. reduce their prices for, for uh, businesses. And I mean, that is just, it's sickening to people to see that. They can do it for them. Why can't they do it for domestic customers? And it, it was interesting I, I just saw the Vincent de Paul proposal there yesterday about having social tariffs relating to people's level of income. And the point was made by that pensioner very well. I mean, the government are going in the most convoluted, roundabout way of assisting people rather than getting the basic, you know, level of, of pricing. Uh, Can you down. imagine? They have to do that. The squeeze middle who is saying, OK, you're on social welfare, you get cheap, cheap uh, electricity. We who get up early in the morning and drive our cars and so on and pay a fortune for our commute are paying higher I don't think that would fly. Lynn, do you think that would fly? And prices have to be reduced across the board. Well, look, I mean, Sinn Féin has been calling for a price cap for a very long time now and and you can look at other European countries who have introduced it um, and it is the way to guarantee stability or certainty to households. But the government also needs to be more proactive in terms of how it regulates the market. Um, They could, the the CRU, which is the energy regulator, has told our committee that they don't have any powers to deal with standing charges. So the they need the government to legislate to give them power so people I've never understood how standing charges go up with inflation since they're doing nothing extra exactly you could use no electricity and still have huge standing charges on your bill yeah yeah, on, on the windfall tax, I, I understand that that the uh, legislation will be uh, passed this obviously in the very next short while. A memo will be brought to cabinet by Eamon Ryan. Um, I heard the minister for finance uh, confirm that uh, taxes under the windfall tax proposal will be collected this year, which is quite a commitment. 
and the commitment of government is also to recirculate any revenue yeah. and it's expected to be yeah. in the hundreds of millions to recircle any, recirculate any revenue back to those who need yeah, but most, 200, most two, a, a 200 rebate costs 400 million across the economy so every time you do that it costs you 400 million I'm not sure how much but, the wind but Pat, we've also seen the, the reality where households have been subsidising large energy users for 12 years the government could restructure your bill so that it's yeah. the large energy users which are highly profitable companies we, we need, could be subsidising households bills instead we need a huge reform of the whole energy uh, purchasing and charging uh, regime that's for sure look we have to leave it there my thanks to Lynn Boylan of Sinn Féin Roshan Shortall of the Social Democrats and Barry Andrews Fianna Foyle MEP The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance weekdays at 9am on News Talk.